Thanks to John for reading the most depressing passage in all of Scripture. <laughs> it kind of feels like that, right? Although some of you are like, that's exactly right. I feel that way right now. You know, you labor and work all day, and even at night, your mind does not rest. And uh, that's uh, a reality I think we're facing. Some people have said, why did you choose Ecclesiastes as a book to go through at this time? And to be honest, I chose it six months ago, not imagining that we'd still be in all of this. Uh, but it's a good book to go through, even when you're feeling discouraged or weary, because it has a ring of truth to it. Do you sense that as you read through? Like, these are my thoughts sometimes. These are, these are giving words to my feelings and my experience and what we're going through. And it's not as hopeless as it seems. So my encouragement is to stick with it. Stick to the end. Uh, we're going to come on the other side of this and find some hope and find some redemption. Uh, but we do have to kind of stick with it for a little while. Last week, I mentioned that uh, the words of the teacher are meant to be like goads. It's that pointy end of the shepherd's staff that uh, goads the animals to move in the right direction. It's a little bit painful, but it won't kill you. That's Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it's a little painful to sit with for a bit. It's not going to kill you. In fact, I think it's going to bring us to a place of life. Well, I want to take you to a place, uh, 1969, a time, I guess. And for some of you, that might as well be 100 years ago. For others, it feels like it was just last week, right? Uh, I still say to Christine, 1990, wasn't that just 10 years ago? Uh, no, it was a little longer. Well, 69 was a little further back, and there was a hit song in 1969 uh, sung by Peggy Lee. Does anybody know what it was? It, it made like number six in the Canadian charts. Somebody say it? Yes. Well done. Is that all there is? was the hit song, one of the hit songs in 1969. It was actually sung by Tony Bennett as well. Uh, those who watch Mad Men, it actually showed up in that, in, in the series. Is that all there is? Well, the lyrics of this song are written from a perspective of a person who's very disillusioned with events in life that are supposed to be unique. Not all the events are good. They're just all supposed to be unique. And as this person experiences those events, they become very disillusioned with life. And so the singer tells of witnessing her family's house burning down. And all of the verses are done in kind of spoken word almost. And then the choruses are sung, right? And so she tells of watching her house on fire when she was a little girl. And then in the next verse, it talks about seeing the circus. And then in the next verse, it talks about falling in love for the very first time. And after each recital, uh, she expresses her disappointment with each experience and ends up suggesting that we break out the booze and have a ball. That's her conclusion, if that's all there is. And even right at the very last verse, she says, I'm not even going to kill myself, even though you would expect that I would with all this depression, because I know that death will be a disappointment too. So the verse or the chorus of the song says this, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. <laughs> kind of sounds like the theme song for Ecclesiastes, at least on the surface. I want to suggest that something else is going on in Ecclesiastes, but that's the way it sometimes feels. It's kind of this 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or maybe a more modern version, YOLO, you only live once, so go out and have a ball kind of thing. That's, that's the feeling we get on the surface level of Ecclesiastes, but we want, to do, we want to dig a little bit deeper than that. Well, in Ecclesiastes, the teacher explores life under the sun. And I, I want to be very clear about this. It's, it's not life without God, not entirely. And God shows up in a variety of times and occasions throughout the book, but it's life under the sun. So in other words, life in the way that we can observe it with our senses. So what we can see and what we can hear, what we can feel, what we can taste, it's life that we can observe. And so he wants to explore life under the sun in the search of meaning. But then he encounters three major obstacles, and this was from last week. I won't do a pop quiz, but if you think of last week and you're here for the sermon, he encounters three obstacles. First one is the relentless march of time. Time just keeps moving on to the point where once you die, you're very quickly forgotten for most of us, right? The second big obstacle is this, uh, the certainty of death. Uh, The two things that are certain, death and taxes, taxes we're doing right now, most of us, uh, but death is the big certainty and he encounters that and it sucks the life out of him, literally. And then the third big obstacle that he finds uh, in in his discovery of meaning is uh, the random nature of life. Life just seems to be so random. And all of this leads him to this one-word response, hevel, hevel. It's all smoke. It's all vapor. It's all, life is, just when you thought you had a grasp of it, it, it slips through your fingers. Just when you think it's taking a shape, the wind comes up and, and blows it away. It's that fragile. It's that vaporous that we can't grasp even the meaning of life. So in this chapter, as we turn to chapter two, he says, based on that observation, based on all these obstacles, the reality of life around us, where can I go to find meaning and how should I live my life? If there's going to be death is certain and the life is going to be random, how then should I live my life? This is what he says in chapter two and verse three. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens, during the few days of their lives. Now, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is uniquely qualified to do this search. Right at the very beginning of the book, we're introduced by another voice in the book to the teacher, and it says the teacher was a king in Jerusalem, right? Uh, The son of David. And so we automatically think of Solomon, Now, it might not have been Solomon that actually wrote it, but that's who we're meant to have in mind as we go through this exploration. Well, Solomon was uniquely qualified to explore life and to explore all of the aspects of life. I just want you to listen to uh, the description of all the provisions for one day that King Solomon had, and it's found in 1 Kings chapter 4 and beginning to read at verse 20. It says this, The people of Judah and Israel were so numerous, they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They were very contented with plenty to eat and drink. So this is a beautiful, peaceful time in the nation. So Solomon has time on his hands, right? Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River in the north to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt in the south. 
The conquered people of those lands sent tribute money to Solomon and continued to serve him throughout his lifetime. So not only does he have time, he has money. The daily food requirements, listen to this, for Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour. I think someone said that's like five tons. And 300 bushels of meal. So that's like 10 tons of meal. Also, 10 oxen from the fattening pens and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry. That's his daily menu. Do you get a sense of the extravagance that's being painted for us in Solomon? Solomon's dominion extended over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, from Tisha to Gaza, and there was peace on all his borders. Then it goes on to talk about all his horses and his stalls, his wealth. Here's the picture that we're meant to get. If anyone at any time on this earth would be able to find meaning in life, it would have to be King Solomon. It would have to be Solomon. He had the time, he had the means, he had the power, he had the wealth. If anyone is going to explore life, it's going to be this guy. And if he doesn't find meaning in what he explores, no one will. (laughs) And that's what he says later on in the chapter. Who else will be like the king? Who else will be like the king after me? No one. No one's going to have this opportunity. So he sets his heart to explore the meaning of life. So where does he turn? Where does he turn to try and see what is good for you and me to do under the sun in our short lives? Well, he turns to three main areas. That's what we're going to explore today. The first is this, pleasure. He goes seeking good experiences pleasurable experiences. He says, it says in the verses, I said to myself, or I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Solomon chased every enjoyable experience that life has to offer. I want you to think right now of an enjoyable experience. Don't say it out loud. I don't need to know your thoughts. I just want you to think them. Solomon did that. (laughs) That's basically what we're meant to get. Solomon experienced something like it, some kind of pleasurable experience, something that we enjoy, something that we seek out. Solomon experienced every single pleasure, wine, woman, and song, and everything beyond. He he was there, been there, done that. He had all the t-shirts. Solomon experienced every kind of pleasure. So what was his conclusion after all that? Did he find life worth living? No, he says. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? And he kind of leaves that hanging. The answer is absolutely nothing. That's his conclusion. Hevel, it's all meaningless. It's all smoke and vapor. So where does he turn next? He turns to knowledge. He thinks, if I can't, you know, go out and party it up and have a good time, then I might as well study hard. I might as well stay in school. Don't do drugs, kids. Stay in school, says Solomon. And he goes and he applies himself to knowledge. He says this, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. And wisdom in this sense is a big catch-all phrase. It includes kind of that moral code that we've sometimes talked about. It includes that applied knowledge. But it also just includes knowledge of random stuff. Solomon knew a lot, and he applied himself to knowledge and wisdom. Again, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, listen to what it says about Solomon. 
God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. There's that expression again, isn't it? It's interesting how it keeps coming up. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the peoples of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan. It actually says that in the Bible, just in case people thought I put his name in. No, he was even wiser than Ethan. Uh, He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This guy knew stuff. He was like the Google of his, his time period. People didn't say Google it, they said Solomon it, right? That's what it's about. This guy knew stuff. He searched wisdom and understanding. Surely this would be a place to find purpose and meaning in life. What is his conclusion? Well, he almost gets there. A little glimmer of hope, it says in verse 13, wisdom is better than folly, he says. It is good to pursue wisdom. But in the end, in verse 16, like the fool, the wise too must die. So no matter how much knowledge you have, you too will die. And that makes it all meaningless, meaningless. Hevel, there we are back at Hevel again. Okay, we tried pleasure, we tried knowledge, we're switching coats and switching hats, and now we're going to get to work. Why not just give ourselves to our jobs? Why not just give ourselves to our work? And not just the stuff that we do for pay, but let's give ourselves the expenditure of our energy in whatever we do. Let's just pour ourselves into doing something with our lives. And some of us in this room have felt that from time to time. Let's lose ourselves in our work. You know, we've lost maybe a loved one or we've lost opportunity or we're not feeling very good about ourselves. So we're just going to lose ourselves in our occupation. So that's what it says in our passage. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Did you notice something there? That whole phrase, that whole verse, there is nothing singular in that verse. Everything is plural. So he didn't just build a house. He built houses. He didn't just plant a garden. That would be good. No, he planted gardens. He didn't just, you know, dig a reservoir. He dug reservoirs. Like, it's showing just how much he gave himself into his work. Uh, the temple he built, um, houses he built, he beautified the city like no one else did before him or after him. No one comes close to what Solomon did. That's the idea here. Well, he comes close again to finding a bit of meaning. What does he say in the passage? My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Have you ever experienced that? Just a moment in del- of delight something you've done that you're proud of, something you've done that seems substantial. You know, a, a day of work maybe it was, or a project that you completed. Whatever it was, you gave yourself to it. It turned out great. That's what Solomon is saying. However, even that glimmer of hope that we get, his final conclusion is in the passage. It says this, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done 
and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Hevel, hevel, hevel. We're back at hevel. So what a depressing time, right? He gives himself to all these things. And I'm, I'm sure he could list many other things that he gave himself to. Pleasure and knowledge and work. And even though we get glimmers of hope, glimmers of meaning and purpose and satisfaction in the end, it still is all hevel. Why? Why can't we find meaning and purpose in pleasure, knowledge, or work? Have you ever stopped to consider that? Why do we only get a glimmer of it every once in a while, but we don't have this lasting sense of meaning in these areas? Well, here's what I would suggest. And this is what the teacher finds as he goes through this writing and his adventure of life under the sun. First of all, pleasure is never satisfied. It's just never satisfied. You're always going on to the next experience, a bigger thrill, a greater dose of whatever drug, and I'm not talking about literal drugs, but whatever drug we participate in, we just want the next fix. We want some greater experience. I love going on holidays, but when holiday is over, how do you feel? (laughs) Sometimes you think, did I really do that even? I can't wait till I get to the next one. And so as good as pleasurable experiences might be, it's never satisfied. Pleasure is incredibly greedy. And Solomon, or the teacher here, finds that, and it leads us to Hevel. I would say that's even true in the church. Sometimes, and I know growing up, I certainly went through a phase of this in my late teen years and early 20s. I just wanted to go to one Christian conference after another. I I was a Christian geek for a while, right? I just wanted every Christian conference because you got there, you're with the people, and there was this high that happened. And then when you came home and saw just your ordinary people around you, your ordinary church, and you're like, when can I get to the next conference? You know? And so we have to be careful um, that our pleasure seeking doesn't take us into places that seem even legitimate because it's so greedy, it'll never be satisfied. What about knowledge? Well, knowledge is exhausting, says the teacher. It will wear out your brain. Every student, every high school student needs to memorize this verse in Ecclesiastes first, right? And the verse is, there is no end to the making of books and much study wearies the body, mom. No, it doesn't, mom's not in there. But, but that's what he concludes. He does all of this study, he has all this knowledge and he's worn out. It, it's exhausting. And you never quite know enough. And there's always someone that knows more than you. Don't you find that frustrating? Just when you think you're like the ace at some kind of topic and you're playing Trivial Pursuit and someone just slaughters you. Because not that we play Trivial Pursuit anymore, but that's flashback as well. But that's the idea. Knowledge is exhausting. Well, what about work? Well, work, he says, is futile. It's futile because you work all of your life. You work your backside off, and then someone else inherits all that you worked for. It's that, that's why we see bumper stickers on the back of those big RVs that say, I'm spending my kid's inheritance now, right? Uh, because that's the idea. It feels so futile. You, you put so much effort and energy into it, and someone else inherits everything that you worked for, and they might be fools, He said, they might not appreciate it. They might just use it in ways that you wouldn't want them to use it. 
So that's why pleasure, knowledge, and work. Pleasure is never satisfied. Knowledge is exhausting, and work is futile. How does this help us? How does this goad us in the right direction? How does this move us towards something that's healthy? Well, the teacher in this case, he tastes life on a level that none of us could possibly imagine. He just he tastes life for us. And, and none of us could, could get to that level of opportunity. He does it on our behalf. And he does it, and he shares his thoughts in order to create a dissatisfaction within us. We, at the end of reading Ecclesiastes, should be somewhat, even more than somewhat, dissatisfied with life under the sun. That's intentional. We should be disillusioned with our lives. That's very, very intentional because we need something that will break the grip that we have on so many things in life. And it's actually this grip that we have, holding on to pleasure, holding on to work, holding on to family, holding on to a myriad of good things. It's that grip that we have that often holds us back from experiencing all the life that God wants us to experience. How do we break that grip? Well, we have to become disillusioned with the thing that we're holding. I've shared this illustration before, and this is not an endorsement of the show Simpsons, just because it has my name. Um, but there's a, one episode, and some of you will remember it or know I mentioned it before, where poor old Homer gets both his arms stuck in two vending machines. He decides to get in there and take a, a drink and some candy for himself, and they're stuck and finally, they bring out the fire department, they bring out all kinds of people, and uh, this one guy comes with a, um, a skill saw, <laughs> and he says, I'm sorry, Homer, we're just going to have to cut off your arms. And he's like, but they'll grow back, won't they? And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And he's just about to cut uh, Homer's arms off, and one guy said, wait a minute, Homer, are you just holding on to the can? He's like, yes. <laughs> and he lets go of the can, he lets go of the candy, and he's free. And that for me is stuck in my mind, as silly as it is, for what we so often do with life. We feel stuck. But the reason we're stuck is we're holding on to the wrong things. We're just holding on. We won't simply let go, trust God, and move forward with our lives. Well, that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes, to get us disillusioned with what we're holding on to so that we can let it go and experience life eternal. Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, he doesn't get his hands stuck in vending machines, but he does the same thing as Ecclesiastes does. He creates a sense of dissatisfaction in people's lives. He stirs up their life. Do you remember the time a man came and uh, he wanted to follow Jesus? And Jesus didn't say, oh, here, just sign up. I'd love to have more followers. I mean, as a church, that's what we do all the time. Come on in, the more the merrier. But Jesus actually said to the man, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the guy decided not to follow Jesus. Or another time a man came and wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, Jesus, just first of all, let me go back and bury my father. I mean, that seems legitimate, right? And Jesus says, you know what? Let the dead bury their own dead, but you come follow me. And we're like, what? That's crazy. Or another time, someone came and wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, you know what? Sell all that you have and give half to the poor, and then come follow me. What was Jesus doing? He was pointing into their heart 
the very thing that they were holding on to. The one man holding on to a sense of security. Another man holding on to the traditions and obligations even to his family. Uh, The other man holding on to his wealth and his status. And Jesus says, the very thing that's in your heart that you're holding on to, I want to put my finger on it. I want to goad it and make you uncomfortable enough and disillusioned enough that you'll let it go. You see, pleasure, knowledge, and work, as we read through Ecclesiastes, we discover they're not bad things. Even as he explored them, this isn't hedonism. It's not intellectualism. He explores it while keeping his wisdom. Did you pick that up a few times in the passage? I kept my wisdom. I kept my head. But I explored these things because these things can be good. But here's the point. They are not our saviors. Knowledge and wisdom and pleasure are not our saviors. And when we elevate these things to the status of savior, we restrict our life to just being under the sun. And we can elevate all kinds of things. We can elevate our spouse or our kids or our jobs or our possessions or our achievements and look to all those things as being our sole ground of meaning and purpose, our saviors. And when we do that, we do them a disservice. It's unfair to expect our spouse or our kids or our achievements or our jobs to be the sole source of our happiness. We get that? It's unfair to look to our friends, to look to our work, to look to anything that we do and expect that to be responsible for my personal happiness. It's unfair. It's unrealistic. And instead, we need to learn to treat them as gifts from God. That's the conclusion at the end of this passage. So here's my question as we wrap this up this morning. Which of these things has a grip on your heart? What keeps you awake at night that you wonder about? What, what is the longing? And it might be a good longing or a good desire, but it's got such a grip on you that you can't let it go. Perhaps it's pleasure, seeking the next great experience. Perhaps it's knowledge or work. Perhaps it's family. Perhaps it's a good thing, but we've got such a tight grip on it that we can't let it go and move forward in faith and trust with God. Well, Peggy Lee, in that song I mentioned, Is That All There Is?, um, has kind of a fatalistic view of life. If that's all there is, then just crack out the booze and we'll dance on. That's not actually the heart of Ecclesiastes. I actually think there's something more going on here. And in the next two sermons, we're going to unlock the hopefulness, the hopeful aspect of Ecclesiastes, because it's not fatalism, it's actually faith that's at work. But we get a hint of the answer here. And it says right at the end, these things are a gift from God. But here's where we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't chase the gift and forget the giver. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all your good and perfect gifts. Forgive us for the times that we've taken a hold of those gifts and expected just too much of them and forgotten to say thank you, forgotten that they are gifts from your gracious heart. Father, we lay ourselves before you and ask that you would make us uncomfortable. Make us uncomfortable in the way that only you can. 
in the way that still maintains a, a sense of your grace and a sense that you are not far from any one of us. Help us to move toward life, to move towards you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.